Welcome to Bottled Petrichor, a podcast dedicated to discussing key topics in Islamic history and thought. In addition to a short lecture at the start of most episodes, we ask our guest experts questions submitted by listeners and allow them to share their thoughts in a safe environment. Please visit our Twitter page for feedback and question submission forms. Thank you, and I hope you enjoy. I am very happy today to have on Sheikh Amin Kolwadia, uh, the founder of Darul Qasim and a, a much beloved uh, scholar in America and likely throughout the world. Uh, Assalamu alaikum, Sheikh Amin. It's an honor to be here with you today, mashallah. Um, thank you so much for being on. Uh, I am originally from Hyderabad. Uh, you moved to Chicago when I was young, and Sheikh Amin is kind of like this established figure in Chicago since high school, CPSA. I think, Sheikh Amin, you spent some time at CPSA. Um, I was there. And then even afterwards, uh, myself and a lot of my friends that I grew up with frequented many of his gatherings and uh, his talks. Uh, he gives khutbahs throughout the Chicagoland area. He's one of the few khutibs that my dad uh, enjoys listening to. So that, that says a lot to me. But yeah, so before I start, Sheikh Amin, would you mind kind of just telling the audience a bit about yourself and your intellectual journey? Yeah, I can tell you a little bit about myself. I don't know about the intellectual journey, but there you go. Yeah, I was born in India, then my family moved uh, to England. I was a very young child. When I moved to England, my father, alhamdulillah, uh, was also an alim. He also graduated from Dalum Delban, and uh, he was the um, imam of a city where we, where we were raised and born. Uh, our brothers sisters were born there. Yeah, the name of the city is Gloucester, it's still there today. Alhamdulillah, and uh, I grew up as a very normal uh, young boy and normal teenager, and I was uh, gifted um, the inclination to study the Dean, and I went back to India. I studied, I did my hivs in Gujarat, a place called Taraj, and I then went on to do some Arabic studies in Sabir Rashad, Bangalore, South India. And that's where I met my uh, mentor and my sheikh, Sheikh Muhammad Miran, who is the great sheikh of Tasawwuf. Alhamdulillah, we may talk about him later on in the podcast. And then uh, from there, I traveled for many reasons. I went to Pakistan, did one year of studies there. Then, you know, through Pakistan, I went back to Dilbend to, to benefit from the great uh, mentor of the ulama of India. His name is Khari Muhammad Tayyib, alhamdulillah. And I spent two years there doing my studies, finishing my studies studies there, also finishing at uh, another place called Jalalabad, which was next door to Dilbend. And alhamdulillah, I benefited tremendously from Khari Tayyib, his intellectual prowess, his ability to understand Islamic ethics and Islamic theology and theosophy was mind-boggling. And he truly was a great uh, representative of the uh, Indian ulama, mashallah. He was their head and he was their leader. He was their mentor, mashallah. From there, I went to a place in, in Bihar, which is the other side of India, a place uh, in, near Patna, where I, I studied some Islamic law, Islamic uh, judge, judgeship, if you can call it that. And many of my understandings of usul al-fiqh came from there. I was given ijazah 
uh, to give fatwa by Khadi Mujahid al-Islam, one of the greatest jurists of India of all time. Uh, so he had, he, he had, he was the head of the Muslim personal board and also he was uh, enacting Muslim personal law for the residents of Bihar and Urisa. So that was my journey as far as my formal structured learning. I came back to England. I did some odd jobs of translating, came to the USA, and then the rest, as you know, is history. But uh, after graduation, I managed to keep um, in touch with a great scholar from Pakistan, Dr. Khalid uh, Mahmoud. Rahimullah, he also passed away. He was obviously one of my greatest mentors and he really um, launched me into an academic understanding, application more than understanding of Islam. And I benefited tremendously from him also. So, yeah. And then just uh, you know, living in the US, experiencing life and how difficult it is to actually be a Muslim if you want to be. A true Muslim in the USA, it is very difficult, but, um, you know, through Allah's fadl, we're able to pray to some people who are interested in serious learning. There's always interest in casual learning, as you know, through the masajid, through the different halakhat and through the different forums, uh, you know, seminars and webinars or whatever. But uh, it takes a great amount of dedication to be interested in formal structured and serious learning where you want to dedicate your life for you know seven six seven years as you would do for maybe perhaps for a master's level of education in any college or university and even further than that you probably need 10 12 years to actually have a phd so i wanted to create and develop a zeal within the uh, uh, you know, like-minded Muslims of Chicago and elsewhere, so that uh, some of them could dedicate their lives for this process. And Alhamdulillah, we found a few people, and Alhamdulillah, we're still finding more and more. That's where we are. Yeah. Thank you for that. And it must have been what the '80s or early '90s when you came to the states. I came to the states in 1994. Okay. Yeah. I was in basically Booneytown, USA, somewhere in the suburbs of Chicagoland. But everything was Booneytown because we weren't developed or established at all. And Eid was a major event in Muslim life in the early 80s until, um, you know, by that time of early 90s, we had become very established and so on. There was no concept really of uh, Zabiha meet in the 80s when I came. And the people were floating fatwas from you know certain scholars that the non-zabi hamid from the ahli kitab is good so it took us a while to understand that you know we need to be on our own two feet and establish you know some system of economic independence financial independence and i think that that was part of the growing up culture of the young people who i met in the 80s and so on so but we've come a long way Alhamdulillah. We are very well established in Chicago and perhaps in other major cities in the U.S. And now, you know, the pie is so big. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I think that kind of answers the second part of the question I was going to ask, which was what was kind of the landscape like in the United States at that early, early stage? Um, yeah, I mean, I came right at the tail end of the beginning. Yeah, People who came in the 60s and 70s, they, they had to live through much more sacrifices than I did. 
And, you know, as I said, it, it was a major function for, for many people in the community. And uh, we didn't have established uh, massages. We did have some sense of Sunday school program somewhere in certain places, uh, as you know, the Islamic Foundation and the, you know, MCC uh, in Chicago and maybe maybe one or two other places. But, you know, since the, uh, you know, the, we, we, we didn't have the children <laughs> uh, to help establish the communities. As the children grew, and they started to learn more about Islam and their ethnicity and their culture and their identity, then that's when people found the need and desire to establish their centers a bit more. Understood. And so the idea of Darul Qasim was in your head for a while, um, but when was Darul Qasim the institution formally established? Yeah, the idea of Darul Qasim was actually, uh, yeah, it was uh, quite a while, four or five years before, it was officially institu instituted in, in uh, Chicagoland 2000, the year 2000 is when we were registered. But we had the idea way before that, alhamdulillah. And, uh, yeah. uh, Darul Qasim came, basically here, here's what I saw as I came into the US, that the US had uh, a culture of adult learning. So when I went, I saw that uh, mainstream US um, they, they were into adult learning that they would go to evening classes, community colleges, and people would want to finish their education and, and despite, you know, their day job and everything else. So, so I, I saw this as maybe an opportunity to hopefully establish the same kind of, um, you know, idea in the minds of young Muslims that, you know, we are here in the US and there's an environment for adult education. Um, unlike other places, maybe in, in Muslim countries at that time, where adult education uh, was really seen as, as, a, as something that nobody really thought of that. Okay? Because, you know, the, the, the idea was that you, you go to maktab and you go to madrasa or you go to masjid to learn the Quran. Or in those days, the, the hafiz would come to your house and teach your children Quran. And that was the extent of the Islamic learning. Maybe a few things, few ideas here. Little bit of information on in, in Sunday schools, but the idea of actual adult learning, where you know, in, in the West, you, if, you, if you take the college route uh, and you see that education actually starts after high school, right? So, you first you go to undergrad and then you do your master's and then do your PhD, and then that requires that post 18, after you become an adult you really start to learn, understand how the world works, what the world is and what you need to do in order to have a good job and have a good understanding of the world, etc. So uh, I thought that this was necessary for the Islamic paradigm also, that um, the Prophet ﷺ mainly concentrated on, on the adults, obviously. He was a Nabi and a Rasul for all people, uh, men, women, children, slaves, whoever. But the actual focus uh, of his intensive training was on the adults. So, you know, Abu Bakr, Umar, Uthman, Ali was a young man, mashallah. But most of the Sahaba were young adults, if not mature adults, mashallah. So I thought that there's some reasoning behind this. And I thought that if we can inspire young Muslims to come and understand Islam academically, intellectually, where they, they, they relate to the intellectual heritage of Islam. Because here's the thing, 
a college student who would come uh, to the masjid for a khutbah would be obviously uh, very disappointed with the khatib for many reasons. But one of the primary reasons was, was that there was no organization, there was no structure, there was no methodology, okay? there was no philosophy in, in what people were saying. So there was no, what I call Darqasim, representation of Islam. So I want to develop in the minds of young people that Islam can be represented very intellectually and very sensibly. And that's the idea I wanted to promote. And, and I believe that this can only be done, you know, when you're about 15, 16 years old. And, you know, so that's why Dar Qasim, we, we only take people who are 18 years old and 18 and above. Uh, we might give some concession to some people uh, if they want to do Arabic at the age of 16 or 17, maybe. Uh, that's not an official position. But uh, we, we do believe that uh, Islam can be understood in a very structured, organized, systematic way. And that's how we, we developed our great civilization. Civilizations don't grow uh, uh, upon what we call jahal, ignorance, right? Civilizations flourish only when there's an emphasis on education and structured, organized education. That's how it's always been in history. So likewise, Muslim civilization for over a millennium thrived mainly because the, the people who knew Islam and the Islam were organized, they were methodical, they, they always had reasoning behind what they do. And that's how I think we, we, we found potential in the US, uh, especially as people in the US, I would say a good 90% of uh, people in the US, and they, they go to college and they do have a bachelor's level education. So they're used to that organization, they're used to that structure. So I wanted to bring that structure organization to the minds of young people so that they would appreciate, oh, and they would, you know, they would be mesmerized and sometimes amazed uh, that, you know, we never thought that Islam was this organized. Or could, there could be a pedagogy to learning Islam, you know, that is step one, step two, step three. Step so they, they were fascinated, and that's probably what drew them, uh, alhamdulillah, into you know, uh, my circles and into eventually Dara Qasim, that they saw uh, that uh, we, we, we can give to uh, humanity as much as we can you know, take. Mm. And as Muslims, we should be giving more than taking. So that was the idea behind Dara Qasim, to, to uh, encourage young Muslim minds to think academically, intellectually about their heritage, their religion, their deen, and everything else, because, you know, one day we're all going to die, and then, you know, what's next after that? <laughs> so there are many, I, I think, underpinnings to uh, how Dal Qasim was established, and alhamdulillah, we've come to a, a good level of now education where we can train almost uh, at any level, alhamdulillah. Right? So at the Dal Qasim, we have what we call undergraduate level, although we're not uh, supposed to say that. But there is a four-year program, <clears throat> and then we have an additional uh, two-year, three-year program, which will be almost uh, equivalent to your master's. And then we also have IFTA program, where we train people to become muftis, and that requires at least two more years of training, learning, and uh, fatwa writing. And alhamdulillah, we have candidates for that. Uh, so we, we, we kind of spread all through the whole curriculum. The initial thrust at Dar al is what we call the Sheikh al-Hind program. 
Sheikh al-Hind was one of the greatest personalities of Muslim history in the 20th century, a great man, a great leader, a great uh, scholar, and a very pious person, mashallah, alhamdulillah. So anyway, so through his name, we, we started a course where we wanted to show an average Muslim that he or she is able to know and understand the fardi'ayn, you know, the bare minimum Islam with Arabic. So we devised uh, this program saying that we'll teach them Arabic for two years part-time in the evenings or on the weekends, and we'll give them some Islamic instruction also as part of the, the curriculum. Okay, so they learn about the Quran academically, they learn about Hadith academically, they learn about Fiqh academically, and they also do a book of Aqidah, Aqidah Tahawiyah, uh, at the very end in Arabic. So they'll be reading with the teacher in Arabic, because that, by that time, their level of reading uh, should be good enough to be able to at least read uh, the Tahawiyah text. And even if they can't, it's fine, because we, we, we believe that unless the Aqidah is correct, it's very difficult to, um, you know, engage with your Islam in non-Muslim settings. So one of the primary reasons I actually developed the Sheikh al-Hind was to prepare the high school students uh, to go to college. And, uh, you know, here we have uh, Dr. Parwes, and here we have, you know, Faras, and we have uh, Sidi Norman, who, who, and even Sheikh Musa, who teach high school students at a level where they're able to understand philosophically the underpinnings of Islamic Aqidah. Uh, because invariably, as you know, we, we've lost so many students in college that in the first year of college, they're, they're, they're kind of bombarded with philosophy, they're bombarded with, uh, you know, uh, other religions, and they're bombarded with atheism and everything else that's out there in the world, and they find freedom. Uh, and they, they, they kind of, they become addicted to the, this erroneous feeling of freedom, and, and the, the, we lose them. They give up their Islam, and I think there are two reasons why they give up Islam. One is that they don't know anything about Islam, and number two is that they, they weren't trained to understand, you know, the philosophical discussions uh, that occur, especially in the first year of uh, undergrad studies here in this country. So we try and uh, develop their minds so that they understand. When they go to college, these are the discussions they will be uh, privy to. And these are the arguments people will throw at you. And these are some of the questions that you will be forced to answer. So we, we train them uh, through this Islamic Essentials course. Okay, that's online, that's for high school students. People can register online. It's very well done, alhamdulillah, the teachers are great. They know exactly what, they, what they're doing, what they need to say, etc. And uh, we have, mashallah, even adults joining that uh, teenage class, alhamdulillah. But the Sheikh al-Hin program was designed so that if you had a gap year, or if you could, could take courses part-time in the evening or on the weekend, we can give you some structure to your Fardayin. And that structure will be built on understanding a certain level of Arabic, which gives the Muslim immense confidence in his deen, in his religion. And, and I believe that, you know, here, because everybody, as I said, in the U.S. has some level of education at a bachelor's level, uh, I think it's very necessary that we introduce Islam academically to the Muslim mind. And that's how we have envisioned and conceptualized 
that are passing at the bottom end. Okay. Yeah. Sure. Thank you so much for that. And I think we're going to tease out many of the elements that you mentioned here, but I wanted to say I, I myself have benefited from Dar al-Qasim. I, I studied there for maybe a year or so. Um, and many of the teachers, there are people that I knew from high school, from, you know, Mauna Bilal, Muftiya, Muftiya Zaz, uh, Mauna Arif Kamal, um, people I think are, you know, very smart people. And so I, I wanted to also kind of just ask a little bit about the types of students that you attract. Um, I like the fact that Dar al-Qasim is accommodating to kind of life in America in that you can't take time off of high school, but you have someone who's willing to teach you in an online program, some of the essentials like the Islamic essentials program that you need so that you can go through high school without necessarily missing anything uh, and slowing down any progress that you need when applying for college. But I, I wonder something about the, the types of students that you attract. And I know it's not fair to say that just because you're in Chicago that you attract students from Chicago, because there's many students who are not in Chicago who are attracted to Darul Qasim, who are attracted to its, its philosophy, and they make the move to come over here, uh, despite there being a madrasa in their in their local city. So I wonder if you could kind of characterize the type of student. Um, jokingly, some people <laughs> describe Darul Qasim as the, the University of Chicago of Madaris. So I don't know if you have an issue with the University of Chicago part or the madrasa part of that, but yeah, I was just wondering if you kind of give us a general idea of the type of students that you attract. Because I've seen personally, yeah. like, some of the very smart kids in college that I knew, you know, GPPA this, part of these kind of guaranteed medical programs are just very advanced students. They were the types, in my opinion, that I saw were attracted to, the, I'm sorry, Dar al-Qasim. So I was wondering if you kind of agree with this and if you could kind of comment a bit more on this. Yeah. Yeah, I think that that's a, a good, uh, I think, question to, to ask. Um, here's the thing. We, we want to um, promote Islam intellectually, right? that wahi, we believe, is supra-rational. It comes from a realm that is beyond the intellect. So there must be some intelligence in, uh, you know, people who study wahi. Right? So, you know, we wanted to bring Islam to a level of, uh, you know, engagement where in mainstream America, we can represent Islamic values um, on par with the, the mainstream values. So whether it's uh, bioethics, whether it's legal ethics, or whether it has to do with, uh, you know, you know, the, uh, politics in the world or anything else that's going on in the world, we, we also have a position on those issues and on those values Islamically, but they, they have to be dealt with in a very organized academic and intellectual way. So. Uh, that's the, you know, the, the window dressing we give to people. And it is because of that window dressing that people like the ones that you have just mentioned, that they're, they're drawn to us because I, I think uh, young Muslims are just, uh, I think, you know, they're, they're tired and they're bored of the, the halakats, right? <laughs> the halakats that you go to learn Islam or the Friday khutbahs and all the Sunday school offerings, they're, all, they're, they're kind of bored with those and they, they want to move on. And they see Dar al-Qasim as a, an oasis, maybe a reservoir, uh, perhaps it's a better word, uh, where they can find, you know, knowledge uh, with these young people. And they can find uh, some of the answers to the questions they have as they engage with mainstream America. And, you know, we, we, we have uh, students from all over the USA. We have some international students on the essentials courses, people from 
outside the USA, they log on to those essential courses. Over last summer, we, we were, because of COVID, we had to do summer courses over Zoom. And we had quite a few international students uh, zooming in uh, into those courses. And uh, you know, we, we get men, we get women, we get older men and we get older women. Uh, so we get anyone who wants to understand Islam academically, intellectually, they're drawn to us because that's the way that uh, we, we actually teach that we want to give Islam an intellectual dressing at least so that uh, we, we can stand in front of uh, non-Muslims and say, this is our position on this. This came from the thinking of the founder of Darul Uloom Bilband, where I studied, as I just said. And, uh, that, uh, he, he was Maulana Qasim, Nanutri, and uh, he would say uh, to his teachers and to his students that I want you to understand this issue uh, as if you're presenting this issue to a British person, uh, because India was ruled by the British in its time. So he's saying, I want you to engage with this Islamic issue as if you're representing this idea to an Muslim. And I thought that's very revolutionary and remarkable that you, you are positioning Islam in front of all non-Muslim issues to say that we're at least at par with you, if not better. And uh, the other term I use at Dara Qasim is representation, that you don't distort the content, but rather you represent it in the context of where you are. And that's another reason why people are drawn, alhamdulillah, to us, because they, they see that, oh, this is not just that you're wrote, uh, you're memorizing things uh, wrote that the theory of education sometimes is that you know you give uh, students information and you deposit that information into their brains and then at the time of the exam you pull it out okay? but that's not education education means schooling so we want to give muslim students who come to darfasim not just the content where they need that information in the deposit box that they, they should be able to use that content wherever they are in the context of where they go. And that's why I think now, alhamdulillah, through, through Zoom and through other uh, media outlets, where we're able to attract more and more people. Uh, but yeah, alhamdulillah, it was a struggle in the beginning. Uh, we, we had several issues in the beginning, and the whole idea was to give the, the Muslim students a college experience at Darafas. Right. And uh, by, me, by, by college, we mean that you come here, you take care of yourself, as if you're in a college at USA, right? So in, in college at the USA, they don't spoon feed you. You take care of your living, you take care of your food, you take care of your, your laundry, you take care of your car. That's up to you. So we wanted to give them a life experience with learning. And that's the model I chose, that Dara Khasim uh, will not have dorms and will not have the, you know, food will not be served on campus. Uh, I thought that unless we make them very uh, independent uh, in life, uh, they will not be able to serve anybody because then they'll just be spoon fed. And you know, that's also something that intimidates some people, right? But it also attracts many others. So, you know, the madrasa issue, I, I think, 
it's a bit kind of a childish, uh, to be honest. We wanted to give everybody, as I said, a college feeling in an environment where there is structure and there's more focus on learning than, uh, you know, babysitting, right? We don't babysit our students, if that's what people mean. <laughs> we give them what they want in terms of, you know, if you're here for the right reason, then we're not going to go after you and then, you know, say, you know, how are you, this and that, you know. So we're a bit not so warm in that sense. But as soon as you walk into the classroom, we're very warm, meaning that if you're here to learn, then we'll help you 100%. If you're here to socialize, then this is not the place you want to be. You're not going to be here because you want to make many friends. And that's not happening because we don't want you to make any friends until you've learned everything that you need to learn. And so on. So we, we do away with distractions uh, because, as I said in the beginning, it's very serious. And uh, that's, uh, that's the only way I, I think we can move forward in the USA, that if we have people who are dedicated learning in that serious way, then obviously your personality comes with you. So if you're already a, a jovial person, then you always remain a jovial person. And if you're already someone who's very calm and very much of an introvert, then, you know, Dara Qasim is not going to change that. So, you know, you come with your own personalities, so we, we don't mind that. At the same time, we, we do want people to be very serious about it because you're here for a year or you're here for four years or you're here for seven years, you better make the most of it. And, you know, alhamdulillah, we have the faculties that can engage students, uh, you know, for a very long time. So it's, it's coming on. So, yeah, so we do attract uh, all types of people, uh, but only those who, who are serious about learning. <laughs> If they're not serious about learning, they won't fit into the Dara classroom. They, they better go somewhere else or uh, do something else. Sure. Thank you for that. And the, the, the general idea behind this series of podcasts that I was planning was kind of uh, looking at these institutions in the United States, asking them about their their philosophy of, of Islamic education in the West. And, you know, obviously I thought Dara Qasim was one of the first institutions on my mind, truly, because it's, it's one of these unique institutions. And so I'm, I'm glad that you kind of elaborated on your philosophy and and if, if i think succinctly the way you said it um representing and representing is is a very good way of looking at it so thank you so much um for that sheikh i mean um i wanted to kind of stick on that college that, that element of college um that kind of i guess characterizes some of the the, the elements of of the Qasim's education and so yeah so sitting in Milan Arv's class just the environment that he set up in the class and made me feel more comfortable. It was is a very um, it was a very open environment. He was willing to engage with various questions that I had. Um, and it, is this is this some is this an element that you think comes from your your idea of modeling it after kind of a college education, or is this something that you think is necessary? Just you know, uh, just because we're living in the United States and these types of situations, will, uh, these types of questions do emerge and students need to be prepared to answer. Yeah, I, I think we, we, we must um, help students uh, live uh, with Islam. And the only way to do that is to help students, um, you know, um, ask the questions they need to ask and whatever's on their mind. We may not be able to, you know, supply all the answers all the time, but at least we can give them a comfort zone where they can come and sit down and be free to ask whatever it is they, 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 they want to ask. But I think as far as the question you're asking, 
uh, is it necessary? It is necessary because not only because we're in the U.S., but also in the the in the quest for more knowledge, uh, you have to be able to 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 overcome your fears, your anxieties, your phobias, uh, your concerns, and everything else. I, I think uh, schooling comes not just as I said by giving people bits of information. Schooling comes with training the mind and helping the person be secure mostly about their Islam. Uh, Muslims are, alhamdulillah, on the whole, they're secure about Islam, but they, they, they sometimes they, they fall into insecurities. And when they fall into insecurities, they want to, because they still love Islam, they, 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 they want to label everything wrong they do as an Islamic act. Okay? And that comes, I think, from a place where they were afraid to ask questions they had on their minds, and, uh, or maybe perhaps they thought that there wasn't anyone there who, who was capable of answering their questions and so on. So I think that these phobias lead to a lot of distortion, a lot of forms of bid'ah and insecurity. So now Muslims are of many groups now. Now obviously after 9-11, most Muslims, 98%, 99%, Alhamdulillah remained Muslim, and that shows that they were secure about their Islam. Hopefully they all know that the reason why they're Muslim is primarily because of their salvation, their najat. It's not just because they want to have a good life in this world. But after 9-11, you know, when Muslims started to become comfortable again, we had this liberal agenda in the country which gave everybody this freedom to, you know, express whatever they wanted to express without any repercussion. And that kind of seeped into the Muslim communities also. And now Muslims today, they will do everything that is un-Islamic, but somehow they'll find an Islamic label to whatever it is that they're doing. In this environment where, you know, that's why you need the serious discussion on Islam, not just the cultural accommodation of all types of Muslims. That, that social pluralism is not what we want to promote. We want to promote uh, the authentic, original understanding of Islam that uh, came with the Prophet and came with the Sahaba and uh, everybody else has inherited that seriousness uh, from that time and from that paradigm. Okay. Social accommodation, I mean, maybe for those who are political leaders in the community, they may feel it's necessary that we tolerate and accommodate everybody, even if they're sinners and even if they're people of bid'ah, just for the sake of numbers. That's a different discussion. And I frankly don't care for that discussion. My focus is on helping Muslims understand that their, their, their deen is much more formidable than anything you know, that is currently available in the world. It is very robust, it is very rigorous, it is very strong, very versatile, and it can offer humanity much more than what humanity is offering at the moment. That's where we want to be uh, with these uh, students of ours, inshallah, so that they see, that them, they see themselves engaging in the mainstream with the idea that they want to give, not that they want to take, like in bioethics, okay? My, my pitch for bioethics is that Muslim countries must develop halal products so that they don't need to go to any mufti and ask whether this medicine is halal or not. Okay? Why are we even asking the question? We 
asking the question because we've acquiesced to the status quo that whatever comes from the West is good and we have to somehow make that halal so that we can consume it. <laughs> so in my bioethics uh, courses, I tell every medical student, I don't want you thinking like this, I want you to give to humanity uh, with the idea that what we have to offer as a civilization has always been much better than what other civilizations have offered us. I think so it's, it's, it's more kind of, it's not about championing the cause of the world, it's just about being who you are, you are Muslim. And if you're Muslim, then Alhamdulillah, you should be like your prophet who, who gave and he rarely took, he didn't take too much uh, from people. He was very uh, kind of very modest person and very shy person. So it was not his, in his nature even to ask people for any favors uh, whatsoever, but he, he came to give to humanity, uh, to reform humanity, and that's where I think Muslims should be intellectually, that in the intellectual realm, Muslims must participate in their fields. I don't mean that they have to sacrifice or compromise their fields. So I want a doctor to be a doctor, a good one, and the best. I want a lawyer to be a lawyer, a good one, and the best, etc. So I don't want them compromising and becoming mediocre in their fields. What I want them to do is to understand the intellectual, philosophical underpinnings of what an Islamic civilization represents so that they can engage where they are at work with people and then talk to them in a very organized, structured way so that they're, 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 not, um, they're, they're not intimidated and they're not fearful. I think fear, I think, has kind of drowned many young Muslims and because of fear, they, they, they want to fit in, right? You don't want to be seen as a misfit. And that fear then leads, obviously, to sin. That fear leads to atheism. That fear leads to apostasy. That fear leads to so many other things that we don't need to talk about. But I think if you can find security for yourself in Iman Islam, then I think that job is done. And that starts with the classroom. So if in the classroom, the teacher is able to give a sense of security to the student, that if this student is going to ask a very ridiculous, stupid question, then it's okay. It doesn't matter. Now, the teacher might say later on that that was a stupid question, but at least <laughs> give him the security that I have the ability to ask the stupid question. Yeah. So that's where we that's where we want to go with this sense of security. Yeah. And one of the other things that I appreciate about Darul Qasim is that you attract this kind of very high level professional class who, you know, comes to the Al-Qasim and is able to marry their 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 own professional background, their years of experience in whatever medical, legal, or economics and whatever their field is, your institution gives them the environment um, uh, for the for for those two things to be married, this rigorous Islamic tradition and this confidence in, in who they are, where they're coming from, um, and what the ultimate goal is uh, with whatever um, you know intellectual background they're they're coming with. And that's that is something that um, I think a lot of people appreciate about Darul Qasim. In addition to the fact that kind of going back, I mean, the richness of Darul Qasim's classroom environment, if anyone were to sit in Dr. Volkan's class or Mullah Arif's class or Mullah Bilal's class, will, I think, no doubt appreciate the, the, the richness of the discussion. And this, I think, can only happen when both the student, when the student is both serious and kind of adult, kind of like an adult or is actually an adult. And so again, that's I think two qualities of Darul Qasim that um, mm -hmm. listeners and even students can appreciate very much. Um, yes. <clears throat> I, I want to kind of move on and ask 
uh, I guess, what you have in mind when you think of Darul Qasim's academics and, you know, what your goal is with the students and um, other institutions that have Islamic studies or NELC programs. So um, at maybe like University of Chicago or, you know, Harvard, uh, Princeton, et cetera. Um, so I guess the question is really, how should Muslim academics from your institution engage with academics from Islamic studies departments and other secular universities? Are there lessons to be learned from those departments? Uh, can any of their educational methodologies be incorporated and reconciled with your own? Yeah, I mean, we're, we're, we're okay with uh, reading, you know, material from uh, these other institutions. And we're also okay with engaging with uh, academics and professors from other institutions. And we should do that. No, that, 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 that's a very positive and also proactive way to engage. And we are trying that. Uh, we currently have hired somebody to help us do exactly that, inshallah. So we're, we're not averse to, to engaging with conversations and we're not averse to interacting with other types of academics and professionals. But I think that what I would want to say is that the terms we use, representation and representation i think that goes a long way to our model our ideology our philosophy and our goal that uh, when you're in say uh, you know you're in a conference of uh, say interfaith theology right that me for the at the moment in may this year there's going to be a, an interfaith forum on ethics Right, so there's going to be a panel of scholars, theologians, ethicists who are going to discuss ethics from the Catholic point of view, from the you know, Christian point of view, the Protestant point of view, from the Jewish point of view, and from the Muslim point of view. Right, so we, we are engaging with that forum as we speak, and we hope that it will be a very successful forum or seminar, and there will be some publications coming out from that. So we're not averse to any kind of interaction and I, and I think the best thing to do is to present Islam the way it is uh, without trying to appease people and without trying to apologize for Islam. I think you have to be in academics as in journalism you have to be honest right your source has to be a true source and in academics your point of view must be an honest representation of uh, the facts that the person may may have written. So we, we don't believe that you have to distort uh, anyone's ideas or opinions when it comes to scholarship. Scholarship has to be brutally honest. So if there's a person in Islamic history who said something which was slightly controversial, then we don't apologize for what he said. We will take that on face value and we will explain it. This is what he means and this is where he's coming from. Now, at the same time, we will also say that we disagree with this position or agree with it. So I think academic integrity and academic honesty is what we hope to develop uh, with our scholars and through our scholars so that Muslims understand and appreciate that in their inheritance of knowledge and in their heritage, there's, there, there are many, many types of uh, scholars and all scholars have their own individual interpretations and understandings of the deen which may not be you know necessary for salvation it's not at the primary level maybe at the secondary level you are going to discuss this and this is academic discussion 
it probably has no place uh, in society, meaning that if a certain scholar had an opinion, which is now very different from the majority of scholars, we're not going to take that scholar's opinion and tell people that this is the Islamic opinion. We're going to say this is an academic discussion. It belongs to the classroom and it stays in the classroom. So uh, what we want to develop is academic honesty, integrity, so that uh, we don't uh, beat around the bush and we don't apologize and we don't uh, discard what people say. So I think this comes along with the idea of academic freedom. Right? I'm a great believer of academic freedom that uh, you must allow people to actually speak their minds and to write whatever they want to write, as long as it's based on evidence. I don't mean that you can write what you want without any evidence. So you need evidence. So if your argument is evidence-based, then we will evaluate your argument based against the evidence, against the evidence, and give it merit if it deserves it. And if it doesn't, then we will just reject it. Okay, so uh, I think academic freedom uh, <clears throat> is very necessary. And I think uh, perhaps in many Muslim countries, uh, most scholars don't have this academic freedom. So we're very fortunate in the US to have this freedom where you can say what you want and you know write what you want. And Alhamdulillah, obviously, hopefully it's good. Uh, but at the same time, we have to keep the community intact and <clears throat> not... Uh, you, you, you know, cause any risks in the community because of an academic opinion. So that's where we want to be. So under academic freedom, we want people to be honest and to have academic integrity and, you know, prove their point with evidence and through argumentation and then representation and representation. All right. And I think that we're going to, I'm going to come back to this question of output, but, um, Kind of before we move on, I, I imagine that Darul Qasim's um, ever-increasing library and expanding library has works, um, you know, written by non-Muslims on Islamic topics. And so, when it comes to when it comes to things that may not necessarily uh, follow the same paradigm as you know the the, the paradigm that the scholars of Darul Qasim, the students at Darul Qasim, follow. I mean, do you feel it is the responsibility of, of the scholars in terms of their output to interact with or engage with these works? Uh, I know you had suggested, you had mentioned that it all kind of boils down to this idea of whatever is true, uh, as long as, you know, engaging with arguments. But in terms of things that kind of fall outside the same paradigm, how, how really should um, uh, scholars at Darul Qasim engage with it? I mean, is this our reconciliation, incorporation, refutation, what exactly is the nature of their engagement? And do you think they're kind of, it's their responsibility uh, to engage with these works? Yeah, I think at some level, all institutions should engage with as many types of, you know, works as possible, but it's also about resources, right? So at the moment, our cost of resources are somewhat limited. We don't have the manpower. But we do have the mission and the vision, and uh, you know we have a good librarian, uh, we have a good li li library team uh, that's uh, looking to bring more and more different types of books into the library. At the same time, well, the main responsibility of the teachers was is, is to make sure that the students who come to the library know, you know, what's right and wrong. Otherwise, that that will kind of you know, disrupt the whole idea that we want to create a good Muslim thinker, right? Uh, so we have to we focus on Aqidah quite a bit at Dar al-Qasim, uh, 
we focus on theology quite a bit. So uh, with the Sheikh uh, telling somebody before they become an alim, first year they need to have the aqidah correct. So the aqidah is the most important thing for the Muslim student. And then throughout their course, uh, they study more aqidah, they study two more years of aqidah and later on in their you know, master's level. They also so study another book on theology, the highest book of theology that we can find uh, at the moment. So I think the responsibility of the teacher or the faculty is to, to twofold. One is to ensure that uh, the student has, in our understanding, the correct understanding of Islam theologically. And number two, to help uh, the students uh, navigate all of these uh, different uh, ideas that are out there in the world so that uh, some of them can take on you know various tasks to write about them write against them and so on so we we, we do want to do that but at the moment is about uh, resources our resources are limited inshallah but one day we'll get there but we also have other types of lectures and forums at our class and where we bring in uh, different types of muslim scholars uh, usually on friday evenings Okay, so they're available on Zoom and then they're all free. Uh, so we don't want the students to be exposed to different types of Muslim academics that are out there so that they don't live in an isolationist mode or they don't live in a balloon. <clears throat> so we want them to know that th these are different types of Muslim uh, people who talk about Islam in uh, academia. So that gives them a broad exposure. Yeah. That's one of the things we are, we are doing very successfully. Yeah. yeah, it's one of the things that I benefited a lot when I was in Chicago. Um, I remember coming to several talks and even talks by like um, uh, by Dr. Shukri. I think he had like a whole lecture series on him in Khaldun, and then I think you had Dr. Khal Keshk. I think Keshk. I can't remember how you pronounce his name, but he came and he gave a, a weekend talk. So these are, I think, this is one of the kind of the unique aspects of Darul Qasim. So I kind of want to move on, kind of just took us a bit more, um, this notion of, of scholarly output. And I guess kind of generally what are what you're envisioning in terms of uh, the students' career plans? I mean, are, are students expected to kind of become like researchers and, and, and producing original work? Um, do you envision your students becoming, I don't know, <laughs> advisors to the state? Or I mean, what kind of what, what, what do you what do you envision uh, for your students when they eventually get yeah. Yeah, I think that that's a very good question, very relevant. I think um, if some of our students are listening, maybe they'll benefit from it too, inshallah. So I think we, we, we have to create, number one, uh, we have to create, a, you know, the market for, for our students and products. Right? And one of the ways we're doing this is that we're, we're going to various communities and telling them that they should invest in, you know, the Sheikh Lohim program. Yeah. The Shekhalim program is, is replicated very easily anywhere in the world. So we go to those communities, give a talk, give a Friday talk, and give a you know evening lecture, uh, maybe even some dinner, whatever. And, and then we tell them that you know your community needs uh, a level of Islamic understanding, which is a bit more than what you're offering. And we can facilitate that by you know sending you maybe a teacher who can come and facilitate. Uh, you know, teaching the community members, both the young and old. So then that's how we develop satellite campuses, right? 
you know, they're not official yet, but we do have people out there. So we have now one in, in Cleveland, very well established chapter where mashallah, the Sheikh, Sheikh Musa does a great job, you know, rallying all the, the troops there. And uh, he has now sent two students to main campus to finish their course. Yeah. And the, these are grown adults, mashallah. So uh, then we have one in Raleigh, North Carolina. We just started there last year. So they have a good group of people. So that's where we sent one of our products. We have another product going uh, to another part of the country soon next year. Uh, and we have um, products going to the West Coast and so on. So I think that the way we want to promote uh, our students and our graduates and our products is, is by giving them a place where they can go and serve uh, what they need, what they need to serve in those communities. So that's the farm system, right? You you raise your own products and you create your own environment and the industry where you can place them. So this is one way. That's step one. Step two is what we're saying that some of them are teaching. Some of our graduates are actually teaching on campus, mashallah, and that's another way to make sure they're engaged with their knowledge. And thirdly. Uh, you can say that uh, they, they can be obviously doing research and anything else that they want to do or whatever it is they want to do. As far as mainstream engagement, yes, we, we, we do hope that some of our uh, products will become part of, you know, um, think tanks, you know, the real think tanks of the US, not the pseudo ones. Um, and then they can advise us with regards to policy. And I think that's important for uh, people. Then you can also, if, if we are applying for accreditation at the master's level, master's, of, master's in Islamic theology and Islamic law, and with that master's degree, they can get a job anywhere in the country or anywhere in the world. It's a bona fide certified master's degree from you know, a recognized college. So I think that degree will take them in so many other places, I think. Also. So that's our hope that we are accredited soon. And then from there, then, then, you know, they can take their degree and do whatever they want. They can join another PhD program with that master's if they want to. They can you know, serve as translators. They can serve in the State Department. They can serve wherever they want to. And I don't think that there's going to be a lack of work. Uh, for our graduates. That's the least worry that I have. Um, kind of one of the one of the few questions I had before we did conclude is how, how do you how do you envision the larger public engaging with your graduates? We, we live perhaps in a time when respect for ulama, respect for sacred learning is not at its height. How do you expect the average person who may be, you know, on the masjid board or making a decision about hiring one of your, one of your graduates uh, in a teaching position or in an imamat position or in a researching position? Um, I mean, how, how, how should they go about dealing with these individuals in terms of, I mean, what you envision in terms of, I don't want to say like salary, what you envision in terms of uh, a level of respect and, um, and accommodation? Yeah. Um, the, what we have here, Dar Qasim, is something called Darul Ifta. Uh, a place where people can come ask for fatwas, which they're doing, mashallah, very passionately. The past year, we've we've answered about 300 questions uh, for, through Darul Iftar. So I think that is now reaching the community 
and people are seeing Dal Qasim as a reference for understanding Islam. And you know, when when you can convince somebody that you can do this Islamically or you can't do this Islamically, then I think that's a great contribution to the Muslim society uh, <clears throat> at large. Hmm? So what I hope will happen is that uh, people will see Darul Ifta Dar Qasim as a reference that even without doing their own research or you know becoming you know like the Salafis reading the, the hadith themselves uh, see Dar Qasim as a religious authority at least morally not legally yet but at least morally uh, they should see uh, that the Islam that Dar Qasim is uh, uh, promoting is the Islam they want to follow so that's what I would hope the community will see Dar Qasim as a place of authority, a place of reference, a place where they can go to to solve their problems and to to seek guidance uh, from the teachers at Dara Qasim so that their Islam is intact, uh, at least from the point of view of salvation, if not higher than that from the point of view of taqwa. So I, I think that's already coming along. Now, obviously, there are many players in the market, as you know, there are many other institutions not many, but several institutions that also play this role of being a reference to the community and society. But I think the proof will be in the pudding. And uh, as we say in America, let the best man win. Mm. Yeah. So I, I don't think we're shy about that. But I think it, it, it's it, because we are seen as a reference, uh, people are coming forward and, and you know, we, we're making life easier for Muslims. That's what it is. So you can do your own research about whether this cheese is halal or not. <clears throat> but it's easy if you ask somebody else because they can do all the research and give you the answer. <laughs> right. And you don't have to worry about the headache of being right or wrong because then the onus is on the person answering the question whether he's right or wrong. So I think facilitating life for Muslims in the US is where we want to be socially in the country so that they learn from authentic sources and they, they have a reference from authentic sources so that they can be inshallah happy with their islam here that's where i want to be understood and i think that kind of just seeing um darul qasim as um, a model for this new type of learning this new type of production i think people will begin to appreciate um, ulama and, and, and scholars um, in, in a different light, especially those who kind of have these dual backgrounds. And so I think that overall, the general landscape of, of uh, scholarship and um, in the United States, I think will, will, will change with institutions like Darul Qasim. Now, uh, before we conclude, I, I just wanted to ask or what plans you might have with Darul Qasim. I remember I, I, I came to you maybe four, four or five years ago, I asked you, I, I wanted to develop like um, some type of like a, like a peer-reviewed academic journal which, uh, you know, got articles from both academics, PhD academics, as well as mothers or graduates who didn't necessarily have secular education. And I asked you how much you think something like this would cost. And so um, you just, you gave me a number pretty quick. And so at the moment, I'm like, oh, this is probably something that you're also thinking about. And you're recognized as this, you know, organizational genius, someone who's kind of like a visionary. And so kind of keeping that in mind, I mean, what, 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 what do you think that you can add to Darul Qasim to make this institution even better? Yeah, everything's in finance, brother. <laughs> Money talks, as you know. So we're not, uh, alhamdulillah, we, we, we do have restrictions as far as 
human resources in, in doing the tasks we need to do. And that requires money. Okay? I don't think that there's uh, anything else that we need to conceive uh, conceptually uh, as to how we should develop and promote the Al-Qasim. I think that blueprint is done, it's finished. Right? What we need now is a lot of money in order to expand, in, in order to grow, in order to build the campus, mashallah, right? So that requires this financial assistance. And that's where I think people can help the most. Hopefully spreading the word, giving us a good name, uh, giving us a good reputation, uh, helping us, uh, you know, send their sons and daughters here, right? Send their brothers and sisters here uh, to learn and also money. I think um, money is going to be required. So the more money we have, the more, uh, you know, programs we can host and the more teachers we can hire and the more students we can develop. Okay, so we do have scholarships here at Darakas if people are interested. And you can go to the website and donate if you want to. Uh, but I think our, our greatest uh, is not a hindrance. Allah gives. Alhamdulillah, 20 years ago, we had nothing. <laughs> now, Alhamdulillah, we have an established building. So Allah's for them. So the money comes as we need it. Uh, we know that. But uh, if people do want to help, then other than making dua, uh, giving us a good name, and, uh, you know, and, uh, promoting the Al-Qasim in front of their peers, I think uh, we need a lot of money to grow the way we want to grow. So we do want to become a full-fledged campus. And uh, maybe at another time, we can talk about the concept of the Islamic University, inshallah. That'll be another time, inshallah. <laughs> Understood. And I'm, I'm looking forward to the Darul Qasim Semitics Department and, and, and uh, German Language Department and all that. Definitely. Um, By but, all um, means. Uh, with that, I would like to conclude. Thank you so much again, uh, Sheikh Amin Kulwadia. Um, for listeners who are listening and interested in the institution, I will have information up over here. I've also had recorded a, a pretty good episode, popular episode with one of the institution's um, um, uh, faculty, Laura Arif Kamal, um, on Quran. So uh, interested listeners can listen to that and kind of get a taste of the, the high quality faculty that Darul Qasim has. Um, and uh, with that, Sheikh Amin, any, any final words that you'd uh, like to say? No, Jazakallah khair for hosting us. Uh, make dua for us. Uh, we make dua for you, for your success, and for, for your preservation. Inshallah, just spread the word. You're Absolutely. doing a good job, so you'll keep it up, Inshallah. Absolutely. Thank you so much. And uh, with Thank that, you. I'd like to conclude the episode. Jazakallah khair. Assalamu alaikum.